Our scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and de denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be back from a couple of weeks vacation. I trust that your souls were fed by Sig Schuster, who reminded us about living out Jesus' own commitment to justice and mercy. And also by last week's video message on Esther, and the difference between living God's call instead of a shadow mission. Both of those messages offer a compelling challenge for us to live more deeply, to live more significant lives as the people of Jesus. Well, on the first of those two Sundays, my family woke up in a cabin near Mount St. Helens in southern Washington. Kara's brother and his family were in the cabin next door, and that morning the eleven of us gathered around a picnic table and read God's Word and prayed together. When I later commented to my little Renee that we had had church that morning, she said, that's not church. See, she's already under the illusion that church is this place, that church is what we do here on Sunday mornings. But that's not church, is it? Church is people. And wherever God's people put themselves under God's word to hear it and to live it, that's church. Well, on the second Sunday, just last week, we attended a Presbyterian church in Klamath Falls, Southern Oregon. And there, with people that I'd never met, 
God's word was opened up to us in a way that brought me under conviction and caused me to repent of an attitude that I had been harboring towards someone. And I was reminded again that church is much bigger than my own experience of church here at Thornhill every Sunday. Jesus has people all over the world. And we, in our life together as a church, are merely part of something greater, something global, something that spans history, something cosmic. The history of the church in Klamath Falls, Oregon, and of Thornhill Baptist Church, Calgary, both trace our roots back to the church that we find in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. There are Christians in the world today because of what the followers of Jesus were doing then. And not only that, but we only understand what it means to be the church of Jesus here and now in the 21st century because we get to see what it meant to be a church in first century Jerusalem as we read and observe the life of these first followers of Jesus in Acts. We're walking through this book of Acts, and today we come to chapter 3. Now, chapters 1 and 2 have given us so far the narrative of the ascension of Jesus, his commission to his followers to be his witnesses, their empowerment by God's Spirit to do that, Peter's Pentecost sermon proclaiming Jesus as both Jewish Messiah or Christ, but also Lord of all, and on that day, 3,000 people receive that word and find forgiveness of sins through Jesus. They're baptized, and the community of Jesus, the church, is born. The last thing that we read at the end of chapter 2 describes the life of that community. Their worship, their spiritual life, their mutual love and generosity. And that description includes these comments. They devoted themselves, among other things, to the prayers. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then kind of as a way of letting us know what that looked like, the author of Acts, Luke, includes this account of the healing of the crippled man that we've just had read for us. Now Luke sets the stage by introducing us to the players in this encounter just before it happens. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That is, about three in the afternoon. See, they were still Israelites and rightly saw Jesus as the fulfillment of Judaism. So they were still devoted to the worship practices of the regular corporate prayers at the temple. So Peter and John, the other player in this scene is the beggar himself. Verse 2, And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of everyone entering the temple. Now here is a man who has never taken a step. Never. He is lame from birth and has to be carried wherever he needs to go. And like others in his day with some congenital condition like blindness or paralysis, he is destitute. He's utterly dependent on the generosity of others for his livelihood. So every day he is brought to his post to beg from pious Jews who would consider it a religious good deed to give to the poor. And at this hour of prayer there is an influx of such people. 
only religious Jews would come to prayer. And so the beggar's prospects are pretty good. What he doesn't know is that this is his last day as a beggar. So the stage is set. The beggar is at his usual post, and Peter and John, among the crowds, coming to the temple for prayers. And now we come to the action. Verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he, the beggar, asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. This is great. I love this. What is the unspoken rule when encountering a street person or a panhandler in our day? Don't make eye contact. And how many people, I wonder, had passed this beggar by and not really seen him? I mean, he was there every day. When there's something that you see at the same time in the same place every day, eventually you stop noticing it. And so this beggar was such a familiar sight as to go unnoticed by the mass of people, probably. But when he calls toward Peter and John, they stop and they don't just glance at him, they direct their gaze at him. He's not faceless. They see him. But they also ask the same from him. What do they say? Look at us. Don't just see us as part of the faceless crowd. Don't just see us as an easy touch for money. Look at us. And he does, verse 5. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. That is, expecting to receive money, because money is what he thought he needed. But God had something different, something better for him. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he, that is Peter, took him, the beggar, by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now the healing of this man is not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is what happens next. But before we go there, let's park here for a minute on this healing and notice a few things. First, we need to notice the miracle itself. What happened? Was it just the matter of a man couldn't walk and then he could? Let's not gloss over it and miss the transformation that happened. Remember, he had been lame from birth. That means there were muscles that had never developed, bones that were thin and small. And what he needed in order to walk was not just for what he had to begin working, but he needed to be made new. He needed muscle mass where there was no muscle mass. He needed bones that were bigger than what he had. And if we had been there, we would have seen physical changes right before our eyes. 
That's why the comment is made, immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Something happened to him visibly, physically. That's the first thing we notice. Secondly, notice the difference between what he asked for and what he needed. The beggar thought he needed money, but what he really needed and got was something that he didn't know was possible. How many of you have ever thought you needed something, but got something different, and it was what you needed? Some of you came back to church thinking you needed moral grounding for your children, and you found Jesus yourself. Some of you have had some crisis or hard circumstance forced on you and discovered that in that, God formed your faith and character in a way you would not now trade for anything. Is it possible that what you think you need even this morning is not what you need at all? Health, things to shape up at work, more energy or time. And maybe God knows you need something different and he wants to give that to you. Joy, strength, wisdom, reordered values. To learn to receive help and love from someone. Some years ago I would visit an older lady who was often quite distressed because she felt useless. For decades she had been useful to God, busy in ministry. And now she was because of her physical and mental condition, trapped in a room. And she thought that her value lay in what she had always been able to do for God. But I would tell her, you know, maybe you don't need to be healthy so you can do things for God. Maybe what you need is to know that God doesn't love you for what you can do. Maybe what you need right now is just to experience His love independent of your service of Him. Maybe what she needed was different than what she thought she needed. And maybe I think what I need is more of a sense of God's presence when what I really need is to trust Him when I don't feel Him. Maybe I think I need a, greater, a feeling of greater authenticity when I worship here every Sunday morning, but what I really need is to remember that authentic worship by God's own definition is to actively care for the needs of the widows and the poor and the oppressed, to be actively engaged in social justice issues. And maybe as a church we think we need to address issues of attendance and budget or to seek revival, when all that we ever really need is to love and listen to and obey Jesus. Often what we really need is not what we think we need. And so it was for this beggar. So we notice the miracle itself. We notice that what the beggar thought he needed and what he really needed were different. And then third, we notice that Peter can only give away what he has. And this might be the most important thing for us to notice here. You can only give away what you have. And what Peter had was the power and the presence of Jesus. This is what he said. I have no silver or gold, 
Can't help you there. But what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. You can only give away what you have. Those grounded in the word of God can speak God's wisdom and hope to someone. A stressed and anxious person cannot impart peace to anyone. How can I speak joy to someone if I am negative and critical by nature? You can't lead someone to a place you've never been. I was talking just last night to a person who has been feeling in a bit of a funk lately about the vitality of her own faith. And she's been praying for a good friend for many years and is meeting with her next week and wants to talk about issues of faith with her, wants to invite her friend to a life of faith. But she says, but what am I inviting her to? My faith itself seems lifeless these days. I can't just invite her to church life because church life just seems like so much busyness and program and so little joy and depth. Francis Chan, on the back cover of his book, Crazy Love, says, It's crazy if you think about it. The God of the universe, the creator of nitrogen and pine needles, galaxies and E minor, this God loves us with a radical, unconditional, self-sacrificing love. And what is our typical response? We go to church, sing songs, and try not to cuss. Jesus didn't die for us so we could go to church. So what is it that we are inviting people to? We are inviting people to a life-transforming, world-impacting, profoundly significant, joyful existence that is only possible by knowing and loving and obeying Jesus. But can we invite people to what we don't have? The answer to that is no. And if we seek to bring the reality of Jesus into the lives of others, it is only those who know the reality of Jesus themselves who will do this most naturally and most effectively. And Jesus is experienced primarily in his word. He said to his disciples in John 15, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We abide in Jesus as his word abides in us. Nobody is a growing relationship with Jesus who does not have a regular intake of the Bible. Nobody. And if Sunday morning is the only Bible you're getting... Your faith is as crippled as the man outside the temple. And the most that you can ever invite people to is the life of the cripple. The hope that the religious people will help you feel better about being crippled. That's the best we can do. But when we are people of the scripture, that's different. Then God is glorified. Then we know and pray for what we need, not just what we think we need. Then we bear much fruit as Jesus promised. And Peter could give to the beggar what he had, the healing power of Jesus, because Peter himself was devoted to the scripture, to the prayers, to Jesus. And Peter was, in the Apostle Paul's favorite phrase, in Christ, 
and the Spirit of Christ was in him. How is your experience of Jesus? Are you in the Bible faithfully? I talked to someone just a couple weeks ago about their life group, and he said, you know, I think our life group needs to spend more time in the Bible itself than in the other books about the Bible. He's right. You know, a cookbook is only good if you eventually prepare something and eat the food. We go to the Bible, not purely as a discipline or out of some kind of religious obligation. We go to the Bible because it is how our need for Christ and our desire for Christ is met. Because Christ and his word cannot be separated. If you want more of Christ, it is in scripture primarily that you will encounter him. And if you're not reading much Bible, well, you can start by simply reading a chapter a day. Maybe the Psalms or one of the Gospels or the book of Genesis. And as you read, ask questions like, is there a promise here or a truth or a command that I need to pay attention to? Is there a sin here to avoid? What does this chapter reveal about God? What does this chapter reveal about me as a person, as a sinner, as a child of God? And when you read, always pray, God, help me to see and know Jesus in your word as I read. Because as we abide in Christ and his words abide in us, then with authenticity and credibility, we have something to give away. So the lame man is healed. This man who was laying at the gate of the temple every day for so many years is now leaping and praising God. And all the people naturally see him and marvel at what has happened. But that's not the end of the story. His healing is not the point of the story. What is the point? Twice in chapter 4, verses 16 and 22, this healing is called a sign. Well, signs aren't about the sign. A sign points to something. A sign directs to something else. This healing is a sign. Well, a sign of what? Let's see what happens next. Verse 11. While the beggar clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw this, he addressed the people. Peter's preaching again. We just had a sermon from Peter in chapter 2, and here he goes again. The call of the church was and remains the proclamation of Jesus. And the healing of this man provides the context for Peter's proclamation of Jesus Christ. The crowd is astounded at the healing. Peter says, let me tell you about the healer. And then in just a few words, Peter does several things. First, he deflects the attention off of himself and points the people to Jesus. And then he gets very personal in terms of their responsibility in the crucifixion of Jesus. And he also testifies to the resurrection of Jesus with himself and John as witnesses. 
He explains the healing as the activity of Jesus. He calls the crowd to repentance and to the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. And he declares Jesus as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In fact, his sermon here has the very same elements as his sermon in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Okay, look at, look at this. God's affirmation of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. Here, chapter 3, 13. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. But also the suffering of Jesus as predestined by God. Chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Chapter 3, 18. What God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. <clears throat> then the death of Jesus, chapter 2, 23. This Jesus you crucified and killed. Chapter 3, 13. Whom you delivered over and denied. Verse 15. You killed the author of life. Both sermons talk about the resurrection of Jesus. 2 verse 24, God raised him up. 2 verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses. Chapter 3 15, whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. He talks about Jesus as the cause or explanation for what the crowds were witnessing. 2 verse 33, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Chapter 3, it is through Jesus. Uh, Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Jesus, the fulfillment of prophecy, 2 verse 16, 2 verse 25, 3 verse 18, 3 verse 22, 3 verse 24. The call to repent and find forgiveness in Jesus. 2 verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Chapter 3, verse 19, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. I mean, their sermon, their proclamation of Jesus was always the same. And the basic Christian proclamation, as we said a couple weeks back, is so simple. And the basic Christian proclamation of Christ is this. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, was crucified for sin as prophesied in the scripture. He was raised from death by the power of God and then exalted to the throne of heaven. Forgiveness of sin comes only through him and you are therefore called to repent of sin and to come under his lordship. That's it. That's, that's the message. That's what Peter proclaimed in Acts 2 at Pentecost. That's what he's proclaiming now. That's what they always proclaim. That's what we still proclaim. That is the Christian gospel. And the truth of Peter's proclamation here is borne out by the fact that in the name of Jesus, a man who'd been crippled his whole life was now waltzing around the temple on legs that were strong and healthy. The healing of the man was not the point. The healing was a sign that what Peter proclaimed about Jesus was true. That Peter's proclamation of Jesus had God's stamp of approval. Something similar happened earlier in Jesus' ministry, in Mark chapter 2. There, a paralyzed man is brought to Jesus, thinking that what he needs is healing, but Jesus instead pronounces his sins forgiven. 
If you remember the story, the religious people are scandalized that Jesus is asserting for himself a prerogative that belongs only to God, namely the authority and power to forgive sin. But Jesus says then, well, as evidence that I have the power to forgive sin, I'll demonstrate my divine power this way. And he says to the man, get up. And the man does. In other words, Jesus' healing of the paralyzed man was a sign of his own divine identity. He does the lesser miracle, physical healing, as a sign that he is himself the God who can do the greater miracle, forgive sins, restore spiritual life. And it was a compelling sign, both in Mark 2 and here in Acts 3. The proclamation of Christ accompanied by the evidence of God's power, bore fruit. Just as Jesus promised it would. Acts 4 verse 4 says, Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of just the men came to about 5,000. And it's this that is the miracle of this passage. Not the healing of a congenital cripple, but the saving of people from their sins through the proclamation of Jesus Christ as Savior. That was the result. That was why the healing happened. See, in the book of Acts, the miracles and the healings accompany the preaching of Christ and are the sign that the gospel being preached is a true gospel. For the reconciling of sinners to himself is God's great aim, and it is the great calling of the church and of you and of me to be his agents by which God does this. Scripture says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance and to a knowledge of the truth. So in closing then, two questions that need reflection. First, where are the things in our lives and in our life as a church, where are the things that cause people to marvel? And we're not just, I'm not talking about physical healings. I do believe that God wants to heal a lot more than we think he does. But in our day, that wouldn't necessarily cause people to marvel at God. Our culture is generally more likely to challenge and explain away and doubt the presence, the activity of God in such an event. In our day, people are more likely to marvel at the transformation of character. When the angry abuser becomes a man of peace and self-giving. When the grump in the office becomes radiant with authentic joy. When the collapsing marriage becomes a union of two people seeking one another's interests. When the crisis that would destroy most people is faced with a peace and strength that can only be divine. When in our culture defined by pursuit of comfort and convenience and wealth, when people see radical generosity and simplicity and service, these are the kinds of things that astound people and make them ask, who is your God? Ties and guitars and choirs and church and groups and programs don't astound anyone. Jesus does. And the reality of Jesus experienced and lived out publicly astounds 
people? Where are these things? And the good news is that we do not, cannot make these things happen. This isn't a question of us just rolling up our sleeves and trying harder and being more joyful. But these kinds of things happen as we abide in Christ and his word remains in us. When we fix our thoughts and our attentions and our lives upon Jesus himself, he will do these things in us. They will be evidence in us of the reality of Jesus, of the power of Jesus, of the truth of the gospel. And then when people see these things in us, it will astound people. And then when we proclaim Jesus to them, we can do that with credibility and authenticity. Where are these things? In your life and in my life and in our life as a church. That's the first question. Second question, maybe more practically, more simply. Who do you walk by every day without seeing? But who God may want to use you to demonstrate the reality of Christ to? Who is it that you see every day and never talk to? Who in your office, who on the street... Who, when you ride the bus, who that lives next door, who, when you buy your gas or buy your groceries or talk to at the bank, who do you see every day that God might want to use you to reveal Christ to? And again, this isn't about us rolling up our sleeves and, and trying hard. It's not about us making a commitment to talk to every person all the time. Okay, from now on, when I buy gas, I'm going to engage in conversation and talk about Jesus. No, it's not. It's not that. It's, again, it's us fixing our attention and our lives upon Jesus. It's about us knowing Jesus well enough to hear his voice and to sense his prompting to say, today, this person, I need you to talk. Need you to greet, say hello. Peter, John, I need to angle a little bit to the right. There's a beggar over here that I need you to see. When we walk with Jesus, when we are in his word, when we know him well enough to hear him say, Ken, I need you to talk to this guy at the gas station. Then it's natural. Who is it that we walk by? Who is it we see every day that maybe, just maybe, God wants to use you to reveal Christ, to speak a word, maybe to do a miracle, maybe to proclaim the gospel. May we walk with Jesus well enough May we fix ourselves on Jesus and love and listen to and obey him well enough and consistently enough that his reality in our lives and in our church will astound people and that he might reveal himself to those who need him and maybe don't even know it.
May we know him, serve him, for his glory. Amen.